They're digging thousands upon thousands of graves in the city of Sao Paulo. Two health ministers, both doctors, have resigned as the number of Brazilians dying or falling ill increased. What critics say is the president's chaotic response has seen local authorities step in to take their own measures. Brazil is tied with the U.S. for the largest daily number of new cases, well over 30,000. President Bolsonaro of Brazil has become the latest world leader to test positive for coronavirus. Brazil is a huge country, the largest in Latin America. Spanning four time zones, it stretches from the vast Amazon rainforest in the north to the peaks of the Serra do Mar in the southeast. Rich in biodiversity and natural resources, Brazil has the ninth largest economy in the world. It's home to 211 million people. A people full of energy, colour and an obsession with football. But Brazil is also hampered by inequality. The richest 10% account for nearly half the national income. A highly urbanised country between 70 and 80% of the population live in the cities and a significant portion of those live in slums, otherwise known as favelas. Within these areas, organised criminal groups like the PCC or the Red Commando fight with highly militarised law enforcement as well as each other for control of the streets. These criminal networks control much of the domestic and international drug trafficking industry that leaves the shores of Latin America and crosses the Atlantic Ocean to West Africa and Europe. But Brazil has issues with other criminal activities as well. Illegal logging, gold mining, land invasion, human trafficking and so on. Political instability from a huge corruption scandal known as the car wash scandal helped elevate into the presidency in 2018 an obscure, fringe, far-right populist politician, Bolsonaro. And now, COVID-19. President Bolsonaro has received international criticism for his handling of the virus. In March, he said, With my history as an athlete, if I were infected by the virus, I would not have to worry. I would feel nothing, or, at most, it would be a little flu or a little cold. And then in April, it seems the matter of the virus is starting to go away. At the time of recording, Brazil has nearly 3 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 100,000 deaths. At the end of July, there were 70,869 confirmed cases in just one day. The country is second only to the United States. This is the impact coronavirus and organised crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. On this special episode, we're going to be discussing the COVID-19 situation in Brazil and how organised crime has been impacted in these turbulent times. But we're going to do something different on this episode. My friend and colleague, Ana Paula Oliveira, an analyst here at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, and a Brazilian, is going to take over. Ana Paula, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jack. Pleasure to be here. Okay, it's over to you. Take it away, Ana. President Bolsonaro has lost a number of key ministers during this pandemic, including two health ministers who had medical backgrounds. One was dismissed despite being approved by the majority of the population. The other one resigned just a month after taking the office. 
They both have now been replaced by a military figure. Government is prioritizing the economy over public health, and Brazil has been largely criticized for how it's handling the health crisis, in particular for the president's stance. Bolsonaro has been refusing to wear a mask in public, ignoring social distance advice, and continuing to attend to social gatherings. Reportedly, he has been making homophobic comments against staff who was wearing masks in his presence. Then in early July, President Bolsonaro tested positive for COVID-19. So after everything that has been said, how has the country reacted? Adriana Ertal Abdenur is the co-founder and executive director of Plataforma Support. First of all, we have to keep in mind that Brazil's extreme right president, Bolsonaro, he has insisted since the beginning of the pandemic that COVID-19 is a mere little cold and that he's been encouraging people to agglomerate, to go out into the streets. In fact, he has vetoed the use of masks in some public spaces, including churches. And in addition to this, he has actively promoted the use of chloroquine, despite the absence of any solid evidence regarding its efficacy. So this is a government that has, you could say, promoted the spread of the novel coronavirus rather than try to curb. And I think one of the biggest pieces of evidence of that is that we haven't had a minister of health for well over 40 days now in the midst of what is the worst health crisis in Brazil and in the world in a hundred years. And Adriana, because of all of this that you mentioned, the federal government has been widely criticized for its response to the virus how have NGOs and the civil society in general responded to that? Uh, that's a really good question. What we can see, for instance, here in Rio, is that NGOs, especially local community organizations, have been stepping up, to, for instance, to distribute food packages, to distribute sanitation supplies, to basically carry out the type of humanitarian assistance that really the government should be doing. And they do so within very difficult circumstances, including here in Rio, continuing police and military operations in the favelas and faced with very few resources. So there's a lot of crowdfunding. There are some network efforts to try to pull together resources from the private sector and from individual donors. And they continue this work. The people behind this are overwhelmingly youth. I just met with a lot of care, of course. I just met with a group of young men who have been distributing food packages. And were it not for what they are doing, a lot of these families would be facing malnutrition and hunger even. Now, some communities, including major favelas in Sao Paulo, they've gone to the extent of hiring community doctors to take care of cases within that community. And that gives you a sense of how low faith is in the capacity and the willingness of the state to provide emergency response, especially in the areas that need it most. In the rural areas, we also see networks of grassroots organizations working to curb the pandemic, the spread among the indigenous populations, which is a major challenge, of course, because the very fact of going into those territories presents risks. So when state support is lacking, does this push people in the hands of organized criminal networks? 
So there's a lot of talk, for instance, about how the pandemic presents new windows of opportunities. And this, I think, is a solid hypothesis that these new opportunities, they arise not so much with respect to well-established criminal activities such as drug trafficking, although that's also an area to be investigated. But what's definitely new, we don't know the scope of this yet, is, for instance, in the illegal trade of medications including those that are being used in the COVID pandemic, but also other medications that have become more scarce as a result of the impact of the pandemic on trade and importation of materials. The exchange rate here has changed dramatically because of the loss of value in the Brazilian real. So some medications, both imported, but also those that require imported materials, the price has gone up and they have become more than before the object of illegal trade. We also see, and this is this one is very well documented, a surge in a variety of cyber crimes, everything from groups that are operating to tap into these emergency response resources to scams and viruses that are spread through cyberspace. And that I think presents a huge challenge because they tend to victimize precisely the populations that are most vulnerable. Much of this podcast will be focused on the urban environments that are the center of operation for these big criminal organizations in Brazil. But as we have heard throughout this series, is that groups are no longer monolithic. They have changed and diversified their criminal portfolios. So I wanted to shift for a moment and look to the effect of the virus in the countryside. Adriana, how crime has changed in these communities? We have to remember that environmental crime groups, for instance, that have been carrying out illegal gold mining or gold digging, land invasions for, for speculation or for agriculture and ranching, illegal logging, which also has a very long history, especially in the Amazon and the Cerrado. So these types of activities are expanding. We have some evidence from the Amazon that, for instance, there are now 20,000 gold diggers in the Yanomami indigenous land on the border between Brazil and Venezuela. And this is a massive surge with respect to just, you know, three years ago. So there's definitely, I think, the possibility that, you know, the pandemic is creating also more space for these different types of organized criminal activities that deserve a lot more research in our area. And how has COVID impacted the security dynamic within the favelas? So starting again with the favelas, these operations, this trend, and there's been an intensification of public security with the deployment of military to functions that are traditionally taken on by law enforcement and police forces. That started even before the government of Bolsonaro, but has, has been sort of consolidated as the approach. And the official discourse, of course, is that they go into the favelas and they kill the bandidos, they kill the bad guys, the drug traffickers. But the reality is that, again, you know, hundreds of civilians end up dying, including a lot of people, innocent standers by, but also children in their homes. And this is because the bullets that are used not only by the drug traffickers when they are there, but also by the military and the police, they're so high caliber that they end up perforating many of the building materials, the bricks and other materials that are used in favela construction. So I, I looked this up and the most recent statistics during the first five months of 2020, 
Rio had 741 deaths caused by police officers. If you divide that by the number of days in that period, it comes out to almost five people per day are killed by the police in Rio de Janeiro. And I'm, I'm talking about the state, I'm talking about the city of Rio de Janeiro. That's a record level. That's the single highest level in 22 years of data collection on police brutality. And of course, there's a major racial dimension to this. 78% of those victims of police brutality are black. And again, so the, the topic of inequality that permeates Brazilian society, it becomes crystallized in this area of security. And the pandemic seems to even augment this further. During the COVID, we have depressingly seen around the world a surge in gender-based violence, which was certainly a big issue in Brazil before. Have we seen an increase of this problem too? We have very high rates of femicide here in the region, even compared to other regions in the world. They were exceptionally high and they have skyrocketed during the pandemic. So the figure I have here from our security researchers is that femicide, the killing of women, has jumped by 22.2% during the quarantine in Brazil. Now, curiously, sexual violence reports are down when compared to 2019 levels. But the reason behind that is not that there's less domestic violence and sexual violence, gender-based violence in general. It's rather that during the quarantine, the victims are way more reluctant to actually go out to the police stations in order to be examined and to register the occurrence. And finally, I want to ask you, with all your experience and knowledge of Brazil, the political situation, law enforcement, the criminal groups, and of course, COVID, what do you expect that is going to happen next? I am not very optimistic, I have to say, even beyond the pandemic. We have to keep in mind as we think about organized crime in Brazil and the region more broadly, and I'm talking not only about illegal drug trafficking, arms trafficking, human trafficking, I'm also talking about environmental crimes like gold digging and land invasions, arson fires in the forest and illegal wood extraction, wildlife trafficking, etc., is that these groups are going to have even more space to act in unless this political orientation is reversed. And even if it is reversed, let's say that during the next elections, Bolsonaro loses the election and someone else comes in who wants to rebuild these institutions, it's going to take a very long time because there's been a lot of institutional loss, a lot of learning, a lot of gaps, and a lot of mixed messages that create pockets of you know, magical thinking. That's why I say that I am not optimistic. I think that we're going to see the worsening of these trends, hopefully during just a few years rather than a few decades. But we need urgently to have a very different vision, both for the security sector, but also for the development vision you know, that emanates forth from the federal government. Because as you also know, Ironically, maybe paradoxically, the way to solve 70% of security issues is by investing in development, in inclusive, sustainable development. That was Adriana Ertal Abdenur, the co-founder and executive director of Plataforma Cipol.
Now let's take a closer look at the main gangs in Brazil and how they are reacting to the COVID pandemic. Gabriel de Santos Feltran is a professor at the Federal University of São Carlos in São Paulo State and a member of the GI network of experts. Gabriel has been studying criminal networks and organized crime in Brazil since 1997 and has been tracking the growth of the PCC. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to talk to you. In Brazil, there are two main criminal organizations, the Comando Vermelho or Red Comando, which is based in Rio, and then there is the Primeiro Comando da Capital, or PCC, based in São Paulo. Two very powerful, but structurally very different criminal organizations. So first, could you tell us about the oldest one, uh, the Red Commando in Rio? And it's a criminal organization that specializes in dealing drugs, especially cocaine, but also cannabis and other uh, methamphetamines now a bit, but specialized in drug dealing, drug trafficking. And Red Commando works as a company and a military commando. They have a lot of franchising system in many states in Brazil or in many different favelas in Rio. And there is bosses and there is employees, people who live in the territory that are controlled by the Red Commando. They are considered to be part of this organization and they have to pay taxes for the commando. And there's a kind of common cashier going up and in a sense inside the Red Commando, the political power and the economic power are concentrated in the same people in the top of the pyramid. And in the PCC, there is a different dynamic. It comes from inside the prisons as the Red Commando, but after 2000, 2001, it changed completely the way of organizing the group. I mean, the PCC works as a freemancery of crime. I mean, there's a lot of independent entrepreneurs dealing with a lot of types of illegal markets, not only drug dealing, a lot of types of robbery, money laundry, a lot of legal business financed by illegal business. And they don't divide, they don't share their money with the organization. They pay monthly for the organization, but they are completely independent entrepreneurs. I mean, the organization is a kind of self-support organization for people who are taking part of criminal groups in Sao Paulo. I mean, there's a kind of ideology and they say, okay, we won't expect from the state support for poor people living in favelas and we will be our own support and we will work with autonomy to improve our lives, to have progress in our lives and to protect ourselves. So the organization works in a very different way. There's no pyramid. There's no concentration of political power in a personalized way. I mean, people occupy different positions in the organization and the position is powerful. If the person who is occupying a sintonia or a, a position with a lot of responsibilities in national level and in Sao Paulo state level or other state level, but if these people, for example, is arrested or die, someone will come to occupy the same position because the position is the power position. This is not something that is personalized. 
And this position is not a position of a chief, of a boss, who is the one who rules the entire system, but it's a position of responsibilities, they say. So they are not earning anything from having this position except the reputation and the statute inside the organization. The PCC is growing a lot for 25 years now, and it's very difficult to break them. This fluidity of structure that the PCC had, together with decisions made by the state security, had actually helped the rapid expense across the country. Law enforcement arrested and jailed the leaders, and then dispersed them to prisons around Brazil, attempting to cut them off from the group. The strategy had, in fact, the opposite effect and helped to expand the group within the national prison system and around the country. And at the same time, as it was not, as you say, a personalized leadership system, other people came to occupy these positions and it made the PCC even stronger. Can you tell me how they are viewed within the communities in which they operate? So the base of legitimacy of the PCC is in the very poor communities where PCC is considered to be justice, considered to be a part of the local income generation and etc. So when I studied the favelas in Sao Paulo, it was very clear for me. While public opinion was talking about a criminal organization, inside the favelas, people were talking about the opportunity of having some money dealing drugs or the opportunity of having some protection. There's a kind of a justice system inside the PCC action. So if you are stolen in a favela, for example, you won't call the police. You will call the PCC guy who is there responsible for the discipline, they say. There's someone who will say, okay, if someone stole your car, for example, inside a, a poor neighborhood, you won't call the police, you call this guy, and this guy will call the, the whole network, and they will find your car, and they will bring your car back, and they will organize a kind of debate and say, okay, you cannot do this, look at that, you cannot uh, rob or steal inside our communities, we have to be united here, so they will kind of punish or at least they will solve the question and PCC kind of delivered justice that people didn't have inside the favelas, especially solving homicides, for example, that in Brazil, 15% of the homicides are solved by the state, but there's criminal organizations say, okay, the state won't solve our questions, so we will help ourselves. So this kind of legitimacy PCC built during years is the base of their trade now. And the power is not located in the leaders. If we don't understand this, PCC is always instrumentalizing and making our policies a part of their strength and the, the way they become stronger. So if we transfer, if we arrest a lot of small smugglers or small dealers and etc. We are doing exactly what PCC loves. That is, we are producing a kind of army to be engaged in PCC networks. So it, it is happening in Brazil for decades. And it's very important to understand the way it works. And it's completely different way from other organizations we have in Latin America. 
and and that's why they are spreading so fast. They kind of use the political and the law enforcement and the security policies to grow up. So can you say that these groups almost play the role of a state within a state? Yes, in, in the sense of security and delivering justice, for sure. In the sense that they say the use of force here, the use of violence here in this place is mostly our and we will have the monopoly of the use of force. In this sense, it's completely a state inside the state. But it's not if you think about other services. For example, in this situation, the COVID situation, there's no health policies coming from crime. There's no social policies coming from crime, for example. In my work, the notion I use is a normative regime Like the crime is a normative regime that coexists with the state and coexists with the churches in favelas. They can operate side by side. So it's in a sense, it could be a state within a state if we think about security policies. And when we think about justice policies and justice delivering to poor people, but it's not at all if we think about the other services that should be there. And then. President Bolsonaro came into office talking about whipping out the criminal gangs. How are the gangs looked at from outside the favelas? Is there an understanding of some of the larger socioeconomic reasons why people enter into criminality? If we look to the general debate played by politicians, played by churches, played by officers and police officers, we will always see a kind of panopunitivism, you know, and a panopopulism that Bolsonaro represents clearly. I mean, what they say is, God is in our side, and we together will face the crime, and we'll face the thieves, and we will beat them in a kind of holy war against crime. That's the level of the debate in Brazil now. And Bolsonaro is at the same time a consequence of the level of our debate, but it's, it doesn't work. And then four years after, they will say, no, it was not enough. It was not enough force. It was not enough killings. We have to improve it and we have to kill more and we have to incarcerate more and then it will be solved and it won't. So it's increasing a lot the level of the conflict in Brazil for decades now. We have obviously focused on the center of operations for these two groups, Sao Paulo and Rio. But what about beyond those two urban centers? Do they have a presence around the country? Yes. So if we look to different states in Brazil now, it's huge. We have 27 states in, in different situations uh, related to crime because some of them are part of the roots for exporting cocaine. Some of them are not. Some of them are closer to Colombian border. There are others that are close to Paraguayan border with a lot of smuggling activities and etc. So there's very different criminal situations. But in a sense, we could see the expansion of CV and PCC in all the states and very different situations in each one. So, I mean... In some states, in five years, we have explosion of criminal rates and criminal records and homicide rates, for example, what means that the local groups did not accept 
the presence of these criminal gangs from Sao Paulo and Rio, and there was a war. In other places, we have the decrease of the homicides, very important, decrease. It means that they found a kind of alliance with local groups and everybody is happy with this and they could decrease the conflict and have more money to pay the police, the corrupted police officers, and it decreased homicide rate. So we have different situations, but in all the states we have Red Commando or the PCC or both in a war now. So we have very different situations, but in a sense, always related to what happens in Sao Paulo and Rio that are the economic center of the country. Coming back to COVID and how the different criminal groups have reacted to it, this is a complex issue because we have state level and federal governments arguing with one another. President Bolsonaro has consistently played down the virus, saying that it's a little flu and that people should go back to work. But we've heard reports that gangs have been enforcing certain restrictions imposing curfews, for example, within the communities. Can you tell us how this operates? Yes, exactly. Exactly that. I mean, if we think about the PCC, as the PCC does not control territories, there was not the same position related to the COVID situation than we had in the organizations when we have CV or other organizations that controls territory. When they controlled the territory, at the beginning they said lockdown, curfew, and it helped a lot at the beginning. But when you think about PCC, they especially focused inside the prisons. They tried to protect the prisons and they allowed the state to avoid the visits in prisons. So it's a major issue always for the criminal groups in Brazil is to increase and to improve the visitation in prisons. But now in COVID, the criminal group said, no, we are completely aware that it can kill a lot of people inside the prisons because the prisons are overpopulated and etc., overcrowded. So they say, okay, we can avoid the visits for months if they need, but the virus won't come into the prison. And what about the illicit economy? Has that slowed down? In terms of markets, the lockdown in Rio Favelas, for example, and the control of visitation in, in prisons, it didn't change very much the business. So I think the criminal groups and the illegal markets are very used to unexpected situations. If they find a route, for example, to export cocaine to Africa, they consider that this route is for this operation or for this exportation. They do not consider it, it is a stable path that they can use for years. So they, they are always thinking the, the business as improvisation, as finding solutions very quickly. So when the COVID thing started, we had, for example, a huge decrease in marijuana traffic, in cannabis traffic in Sao Paulo. But a couple of weeks after, it was completely normalized. And in terms of cocaine, there's a lot of points of entrance of cocaine in Brazil coming from Bolivia, Colombia, and the north part of the country, Venezuela. 
So there was no problem at all related to cocaine, for example. A car robbery, same thing. For one month, it decreased a lot. And of course, the car robbery in, in Sao Paulo especially, it feeds the spare parts markets all over the country. So it decreased a lot in one month. But after that, it came to exact the same level as before. So I think that those criminal networks more professionalized and more related to illegal markets conceived now in a transnational scale, they could adapt very quickly to COVID. Thank you very much, Gabriel. That was Gabriel dos Santos Filtran, a professor at the Federal University of São Carlos in São Paulo State and member of the GI Network of Experts. COVID has impacted the illicit economy of Brazil like it has done to other countries around the world. The data is still blurred, so by how and how much it has impacted, it's still to be determined. But certainly, what we have seen here are trends. We will now explore more what is happening to the illicit economy of Brazil. Are criminal groups diversifying and how? Christian Viana de Azevedo is an academic researcher and a law enforcement officer who specializes in transnational organized crime and terrorism. He is also a member of the GI network of experts. It depends on, especially on turf wars among criminal organizations or gangs for the new areas that they are investing in. For instance, those that used to be solely uh, drug dealers, narco traffickers, they are resorting more on bank robberies or armed robberies in order to make profit, or they have diversified through uh, cybercrime in order to be able to keep on with their profits and their structure of their criminal group. And in some stances, for instance, as for uh, drug trafficking, we have seen an increase in cannabis consumption, I think for two factors. People are more confined, so they have been idle at home and they have been resorting to uh, smoke more cannabis. And also because these past months, it's the harvesting uh, season in Paraguay. We also see the seizures of cannabis by our border patrol police and the police law enforcement in general has been going up. Was it surprising to see increases in drug seizures? We thought in the beginning the trend would to go down, but it was right the opposite. The same as for cocaine trafficking, as Brazil is a transit country. There's you know, cocaine from Bolivia, Peru and Colombia. Tons every week transit through Brazil and they exit through our ports and the airports mainly. So what happens is with far fewer flights, commercial flights going out from the airport hubs like Sao Paulo and Rio, the drug traffickers are resorting more on sea transportation, not only container ships, but also recreational ships like yachts and fishing vessels. And this is mainly towards Europe or West Africa. So cocaine trafficking hasn't stopped. We have seen a decrease in the abuse of cocaine, the use of cocaine within Brazil. It has to do also with the places that cocaine is mostly consumed, like in bars, discos. All these places have been closed for the last three months. Cocaine has been, you know, the trends of consumption, has, they have been going down. But 
the export, it hasn't been going down. Export is actually maybe even higher now through ports and all those sea lanes to Europe and uh, West Africa. PPE, personal protective equipment shortages, have occurred around the world. Have we seen any examples of the organized criminal groups stealing PPE equipment in Brazil? Yes, there are some examples that we can see them in open source and in the media, like where we have had in, in Guarulhos Airport in Sao Paulo, in which organized crime has stolen 15,000 masks and other equipment, protection equipment. Also, they have diverted and, and later stole those COVID tests. This has happened not only in Sao Paulo, it has happened all over the country but in a lesser scale. Criminal organizations, they have taken advantage of these times to steal those, to steal sanitizers, uh, sanitizers uh, cargo, and sell them in the black market for a costlier price, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, in which we were short of supplies, especially short of masks and short of hand sanitizers. And so these guys, they enjoyed this opportunity to uh, prey on the population. Also, what we have seen and in Brazil lately is the um, government officials' corruption in whenever purchasing these protection equipments and also COVID tests and also structuring field hospitals. So we have had a few police investigate, law enforcement investigations and federal police operations in the southern part of Brazil and in the southeast and in the north just counter this kind of crime in which the municipalities and sometimes the state they, they're doing this crime of embezzlement when they were acquiring equipment for COVID prevention. And also they were making use of this money that comes from the federal government to build hospitals and clinics and field hospitals. They were, you know, putting their, this money in their pockets while building this, these facilities. So we have seen an increase in that too, unfortunately. What about other crimes? Obviously, we know that organized criminal groups are not monolithic. They are diversified. They are involved in lots of different illicit markets. We have seen an increase in cybercrime around the world. Have we seen any established criminal groups like the PCC or Red Commando involved in cybercrime in Brazil? Oh, this is, this is an interesting question. As far as we have collected information about this, we are, can approach it from uh, two different views. The regular cyber criminals, the ones that operate even alone by themselves, those hackers, or they have like a little, a small gang that they use to credit card fraud and this kind of online frauds, they have been exploiting the pandemic big time. But outside of those actors, which were the regular ones, like we can say the usual suspects within the cyber crime realm, we can see also that organized crime groups which cybercrime is not their main activity, like PCC, for instance, like you have mentioned, or like CV and other criminal organizations, they are resorting now to cybercrime as a source of revenue once other crimes are down now. So the profit from other crimes, from street crime is down. For instance, a gang like PCC, they profit a lot from drug trafficking, but they also profit from other sort of street crimes, robberies, bank robberies, and the like. Once they have seen the pandemic as an opportunity to exploit cybercrime, they just have begun to structure themselves towards this. Even though drug trafficking has not diminished at to a point that they have to rely solely on different sorts of income outside of drug trafficking, they do see the pandemic as a business. They say, look, we don't see through the pandemic how it's going to be our business at the end. 
So now they realize they have to exploit the opportunity, that they have to act more online, since people are more connected now. We might see a different criminal organization at the end of the line after COVID-19 pandemic. These organizations that they have diversified and they have done it for good. I mean, they're not going to be what they were pre-pandemic. That's my opinion. So some of them, even like PCC, if they have developed their in-house capability for cybercrime, this capability will be used in the future to support their main business, which is drug trafficking, and will be used also as a side criminal business to enhance their profit. You've mentioned that these groups are essentially asserting themselves and hoping to increase their ability in terms of criminal governance. Do you think that the criminal groups within Brazil will emerge from the COVID pandemic stronger? From my point of view, from my law enforcement point of view and my academic point of view, I'd say that they will have two outcomes. Some of the groups that they have adapted better to the COVID time, they have adapted their business model to the COVID time, they will emerge stronger the way I see it. But while there are some groups that they have had a less adaptation to the COVID time, they are suffering more during the COVID, and these groups will emerge weaker, especially because in their turf war for market share, the stronger ones will swallow market share from the weaker ones. So in my view, there will be groups emerging stronger, and they will represent a bigger threat to the state. On the other hand, there will be some groups that they will emerge weaker and they will be easier to counter or by the state or they will be swallowed and turf wars with the stronger ones. Thank you very much, Christian, for joining us on The Impact. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure and an honor. That was Christian Viana de Azevedo, an academic researcher and law enforcement officer specialized in transnational organized crime and terrorism. Christian is also a member of the GI Network of Experts. As we've heard previously during this podcast, violence is a real issue in Brazil. Homicide rates are some of the highest in the world. Heavily armed gangs and highly militarized police frequently find themselves in gunfights on the favelas and in the streets of Brazil. Our previous guest, Christian, described overall violence in certain states of Brazil as wave-like. In some states at the beginning of the COVID crisis, violence was increasing and then it started to decrease. And in other states, the dynamic was completely the opposite. So how has COVID impacted violence levels on the streets of Brazil? Antonio Sampaio is a research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the host of the Sound Strategic podcast, a member of the GI network of experts, and author of the paper Illicit Order, the Militarized Logic of Organized Crime and Urban Security in Rio. It seems that the coronavirus pandemic has had little impact on the levels of violence. We have seen a reduction in homicides in many states in the most recent months, but during March and April, some states reported actual increases in violence. In March, for instance, the, the state of Rio de Janeiro reported a small increase in, in violence, and of course, the standards of violence are already quite high, quite violent in normal times. 
And what we have seen is that in the northern states of Brazil, in Amazonas state and Acre, actually there was a gang war going on there among the Red Command, which is actually a gang based in Rio, and supporters of the first capital command. And a third gang that is called the Northern Family that used to control very firmly the transnational organized crime picture in the Amazonas state. And these three groups engaged in very fierce rivalry and conflicts and clashes during the height of the pandemic in March and part of April. And actually, there, were, there was a lot of territory being conquered by the Red Command and dislodging these local groups. So the gang warfare picture sometimes stayed open without any effect from the pandemic, and maybe the effect that law enforcement might have been diverted at least partially to respond to the pandemic and help keep people under social distancing measures and other things might have had even an impact on reduced law enforcement. Again, it's just a hypothesis, but, but it might have happened. What has been the response of the militarized police units during COVID? There are two things to consider here. One is that law enforcement in, let's say, normal areas, the sort of middle class and other areas that are not directly controlled by the gangs, law enforcement in those areas, especially in states that are poorer and have less resources than the ones in the southeast of Brazil, that law enforcement might have struggled to cope with the coronavirus crisis and the ongoing security problems that, that they have. But the other thing is that the militarized response to crime has not stopped during the pandemic. It might have reduced. We, we can't state for sure now. But we know that the most militarized security force and most commonly used is the one in Rio de Janeiro against the gangs that control the favelas. And we saw that there have been operations by the military police against organized crime in the favelas that involved a lot of shooting and a lot of deaths. And they have continued during the pandemic, not as frequently as previous periods, but some of them have continued and actually caused quite a lot of outcry from the, the locals and from many parts of society. So they have not stopped. The militarized approach does not necessarily reflect the future picture of security in Brazil because they are relatively cheap to conduct because the whole problem is that you don't put the law enforcement there on the streets permanently. You adopt a very incursionary approach. You do incursions into the slums with a lot of shooting. You enter territories that are very fiercely controlled by the gangs, causing a lot of victims, and then you withdraw. So it's a very short-term mindset of going to the slums and withdrawing the same day just to punish a certain gang or try to arrest someone or apprehend drugs. What Brazil will struggle, I think, even more in the future is with its challenge of getting law enforcement to have a more community and proximity approach to its people and which requires hiring enough police officers and training them to really stay and develop better relations with communities. That sort of policing, I think, will, will struggle even more than it already is now. And, and it has been quite a struggle in Brazil to get police out of this militarized mindset to a more community-oriented approach. What is the reaction of Brazilians to this militarized approach? Do you think people believe that this is working? Brazilians are generally very displeased, of course, for very good reasons, with the government broadly conceived, both state governments and the federal government, how they have dealt with security. 
what we see frequently is that there is a disconnect between people's feeling of insecurity and political rhetoric around security. So around electoral campaign periods, you see lots of people, including the current governor of Rio and the president, Jair Bolsonaro, they had very similar rhetorics during the respective campaigns, calling for iron fist approaches to security, militarized approaches, zero tolerance, being tough on crime, all these measures, all these speeches around militarized responses to crime have been quite prominent during the last general election in Brazil. And many Brazilians have come to think that criminality levels are so high that these types of measure should be justified or are justified. So it's it's similar to what happens in many Latin American countries where technical evidence repeatedly shows that these militarized approaches do not work in the long term and sometimes not even in the short term. But the rhetoric of cracking down on crime with militarized approaches continues to, to appeal to people. And on top of that, I go back to the issue of resources and public policy, because we have seen in some cases, especially in the state of Rio de Janeiro, attempts to adopt a more proximity-oriented policing that was called the pacification program in Rio de Janeiro. However, putting police officers on the ground permanently in areas that are quite unstable and quite prone to have criminal attacks requires a lot of personnel and a lot of money. So. Brazil, as a middle-income country, as part of the developing world, like many other countries, struggle to maintain these levels of manned police on the ground. So these two factors, the, the militarized propensity of politicians with support of part of the public and the lack of resources, has meant that Brazil has consistently resorted to militarized approaches as the short-term measure. What we can hope is that gradually, through dialogue with the expert world, the academia, the evidence that is coming, and also with the civil society organizations that are on the ground campaigning for a more humane security and policing picture, that these dialogues will will bear fruit. But we need politicians that look more kindly towards the evidence and the technical aspects of security to take measures that are more humane and, and sustainable. The country was rocked by a huge corruption scandal known as Car Wash Operation or Operação Lava Jato, a scandal that has landed two former presidents in jail. Does that historical corruption in any way relate to the political response that we are seeing now? So, in a way, the current situation in the country with the federal government being less than proactive in its response to the coronavirus is a consequence of large-scale corruption because large-scale corruption uncovered by many, many operations and reports and investigations, but especially through the car wash investigation against corruption in Petrobras and other big state agencies and companies, has led to a huge disbelief in the political elite, at least the political elites that were at power at the time, such as the Workers' Party and the the role of Congress, all the main instruments of national politics have become discredited. And Bolsonaro has directly benefited from it because he was, until then, a very low-profile lawmaker in the lower chamber of Congress. The party that brought him to power, he later withdrew from that party, was very small and rose quite quickly in the last election. So there has been this anti-status quo thinking 
around Brazilian politics and among Brazilian voters. And the fact that a very new force for Brazilian politics, which is this right-wing populism around built around social media and directly talking to its members and its supporters via WhatsApp, via Facebook, has been a source of conflicting information during the coronavirus and has been a big channel for Bolsonaro to voice opinions and views that are completely disconnected from scientific advice. So this anti-status quo feeling in Brazil has had a role in helping the spread of this false information and also anti-scientific views around coronavirus. So we can disconnect one thing from the other, right? So the corruption scandals are part of the political crisis and are part of the huge problem that Brazil now faces with coronavirus. And President Bolsonaro came to power talking about anti-corruption and other things like that. Is there any evidence that he has attempted to tackle the problem, in fact? Unfortunately, the evidence is uh, to the contrary, because he's now involved in a few corruption investigations of his own, or at least his sons are. And that is part of the problem that led, for instance, to the exit of his very high-profile justice minister, Sergio Moro, who was himself one of the judges that passed verdicts or helped to judge the cases of the car wash investigation. And he withdrew from government. He resigned after Bolsonaro reportedly tried to impose a new head of the federal police, allegedly because it wanted to interfere in an investigation to one of his sons in Rio de Janeiro. And there was also another investigation into fake news operations, again, involving one of his sons. And this one is even more directly related to Bolsonaro because it also involves the Bolsonaro campaign, political campaign. So there are a few investigations looming over Bolsonaro. Plus, on top of all the controversies, the cultural wars, and all the, the conflicts that have involved Bolsonaro and other institutions of Brazilian democracy, these things have greatly disturbed his image as a corruption fighter. Plus, the fact that he broke with Sergio Moro, who was the anti-corruption champion himself, has further dented Bolsonaro's anti-corruption credentials. And finally, given your expertise and knowledge of Brazil and the organized criminal networks there, could you give us a brief outline of what you think is going to happen going forward? Where is Brazil going from here politically? I think Bolsonaro faces a very difficult period ahead. He is still in the middle of one of the world's worst pandemic situations in any country in the world. And he has had a direct role in issuing contradicting information, and that has had a big impact on his popularity and, and approval ratings. On top of that, he has a few investigations looming over either his sons or over his political campaign in terms of fake news dissemination. The economy, despite him trying to raise the flag of the economy, let's prioritize the economy over the social distancing measures, the economy will have an impact like the economies of many countries. And that will, again, inevitably be at least partially blamed on Bolsonaro. So Brazil faces a difficult time ahead. It is a time of reckoning for its political system in which an old, perceivedly uh, corrupt system was replaced by a very different far-right populist approach to politics. And that model is also coming under doubt now. So 
What comes next will depend on the political offer that the parties will present going forward. The coronavirus crisis and the numbers rising and the cases, they are a health crisis, but they are part of a bigger political situation that is quite problematic and difficult to solve. So we'll see if any figure and political movement in Brazil will be built from the ashes of its old system. That was Antonio Sampaio, a research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the host of the Sounds Strategic Podcast, and a member of the GI Network of Experts. Thank you very much, Ana Paula. That's all we've got time for on this podcast. A special thank you to Adriana, Gabriel, Christian and Antonio. You can read more coverage of transnational organized crime by heading over to our website, www.globalinitiative.net, where you can also find other podcasts like Africa and the Global Illicit Economy and Deep Dive Exploring Organized Crime. We've also launched an important campaign called The Faces of Assassination. The Global Initiative is bearing witness to and keeping the memories alive of those who paid the ultimate price in the fight against organized crime. If you head over to assassination.globalinitiative.net, you're able to download the Faces of Assassination book for free. Don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe, and share the podcast around. This is the Impact Coronavirus and Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And I'm Ana Paula Oliveira. Thanks for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally and globally. Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest and humble person who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They didn't die. They multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination project. These profiles highlight places where organized crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.